0: sort of broadening the edges of our radical imaginations for what a more supportive world would look like. Like, what, what are the things that we can actually do in our daily lives that can prevent this kind of harm from happening?
1: Hi, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Hecate, and this is Finding Okay, a healing podcast for survivors of sexual assault and abuse. I'm here today with my friend Lily Sage with part two of our conversation about restorative justice. If you haven't heard part one, I would suggest giving that a listen first. My apologies again for my mic mix-up in these two episodes. If I was going to mess up, obviously I was going to do it for a two-parter episode. Classic! Classic! but I loved talking to Lily about this stuff, and I'm very excited about both these episodes, and I hope that you enjoy them too. And now it's time for... Trigger and content warnings for this episode include the following. Sexual assault, rape, trauma, trafficking, suicide, violence, the justice system, police, systemic oppression, racism, eugenics, ableism, generational trauma addiction substances and the pandemic please check in with yourself and make sure you're all right to continue
0: rehabilitation was an aspect that i wanted to talk about some and what that can look like when we don't have like we just don't really have a social safety net here (laughs) which is you know the root cause i think of many of our issues in what sense Like a social safety net. I mean, just in terms of healthcare services, but also in terms of counseling that isn't punitive either, or um, stigmatizing outside of institutionalization that is accessible to most people, or like even just family support systems or like kinship systems. I think a lot of people, you know, seek to create their own families, but those are also not necessarily reliable because this is the society that we've grown up in and we don't really know how to do things outside of that, right? We're like trying to forge our own way, but it doesn't always look that good. Like, for example, instead of prison, what would be an option that would actually heal the harm that's been caused by whatever the action was that Mm -hmm. landed someone in prison? Like what, again, going back to these questions of what could have prevented this?
1: The episode will have aired by the time, you know, this episode airs. The January 27th episode with Janita Nichols. Uh, she's a former police officer and she shares a story about responding to a call of shoplifting and it was a young black boy and he was stealing food and the white officers wanted to arrest him and she meant he wasn't willing to speak in front of them. And she managed to get him, you know, take him aside and he confided in her and said, you know, that I think, I think like their parent figure was, I can't remember sick or in jail, but wasn't, wasn't present. And they had no food and his baby sister was hungry and he was just trying to feed a, a hungry child mm-hmm. and, uh, and doing what he had to do in order to make that happen. And she paid for the food and didn't arrest him, brought him home and, And said to call her if he ever needed help. As we've been talking, that kept popping up in my mind of what's the real problem here. And that when we jump to these punitive measures, we often miss the point of that story, which could have been complete, and it often is completely overlooked, which is, well, why is this happening? Because children are hungry. Yeah. That's an even bigger problem. How about we fix that? Yeah. Who the fuck wants to live in this society? I mean, this is like,
0: the bottom line for me, you know, because we live, we're of a generation where many of our friends have have died, whether because of overdose or suicide, mostly. Um, And it's because we've, you know, created a society that's not functional. It doesn't support most life. It's not really interested in life. It's negating of life. And so I guess restorative justice, it's a system that is not just concerned with And with a particular outcome, right? Like this person's going to go to jail or they're not. Or even in this case, there's going to be some healing that occurs where there was a harm before. But more, Mm -hmm. um, what are the values that we want to be purveying? And also, how do we make them a reality? What does that look like? So it oftentimes means not just like having a peacemaking circle or something for a particular incident of so called harm. But rather, like, what are what are the resources that people need? Um, What is the structure that people need in order to feel safe and cared for and supported so that they don't have to do things that are harmful or like are are not even aware that they're harm that they're harming someone else? So like things like we heard a lot over the summer about it in the demands for abolishing the police or defunding the police, I guess is how it began, Mm -hmm. because that was more palatable to people.
1: There is actually a difference in those. And that's something that some people might not be aware of.
0: Yes. So defund the police is calling for resources to be reallocated away from police and more towards these social safety nets that I'm talking about, right? Like having a resource officer who's not trained as a police officer, but is trained in de-escalation or mediation or mental health crisis or something, who can come in in particular circumstances, or having like social workers on site—that's and a problematic thing too. But um, because a lot of social workers are actually feeding into the prison industrial complex, unfortunately, even though I think most people who get into social work do it because they have a desire to to create and see change in society and heal people. Right. But unfortunately, because of the mechanisms that be, it's usually challenging for them to actually operate outside of the auspices of, of the state in a, in a practical way. Right. That isn't just funneling people into prisons, which I saw working mm-hmm. in a public school for the first time where actually we were trained in restorative justice circles. And there was a resource mm-hmm. room for meditation for children, And there was also a social worker who called the police on the kids. So it was like this very confusing, even though it only went up to sixth grade at that school, this very confusing dynamic of like, we're trying to implement this. And also, we still believe in the violence of the state as a solution for our behavioral problems or whatever. Jeez. And that was at a very progressive public school, like considered to be one of the most progressive in the city in Philadelphia at the time. So... That's very upsetting. It's very, it was very upsetting. Um, So it's a question of what are the things that we need to have in place? So a lot of the work of some of the organizations that formed sort of as ad hoc responses to sexual assault were like, how do we beyond like the immediate response, which sometimes was punitive, you know, similar to the way that the state enacts violence upon our bodies, like in the case of. Philly's Pissed, which was the ad hoc organization that formed out of those rapes that I told you about, those particular incidents at a music <laughs> festival in 2005 and, and, or 2004 in Philadelphia, they had this initial ad hoc response. And then when when people were sort of motivated by the experience that they had had engaging with people, like the, the empowerment that they felt in their own lives, they realized that they needed to also form this other sister organization called Philly stands up, which is actually doing the rehabilitative work. So Philly's pissed this organization that formed, you know, at a music festival, cause there were a couple of rapes started by beating up the perpetrators. <laughs> right. Which is like kind of like a, a rape revenge wet dream that was frequently portrayed on film in the seventies. And, and, experienced revitalization later. But then they were like, okay, this is still like, we're still actually enacting violence in the same way that the state does more or less. And then ultimately, I think in that instance, they had also called the cops on those people. And the third thing that they did at that time was they photographed the IDs of those two men and sent communiques out to the communities that they were from and said that they were basically kicked out of anarchy or kicked out of the punk scene. So that was the initial response and this other organization formed to actually, so Philly's Pissed ended up being an organization. Ultimately, I think that was receiving the demands of survivors for their sense of, uh, like restoring their sense of the sanctity of their bodily vessel or safety within the community or whatever their demands were. And then Philly Stands Up ended up being an organization that was given the task of both giving those demands to the perpetrator and then also holding them accountable to them. So oftentimes those demands were for things like, I really want you to go to therapy so you can like try and understand the harm that you've caused or why this wasn't consensual, things like that. Mm-hmm but then a, a lot of the other work that organizations like Philly's pissed and then later ones that cropped up out of um what I'm what I've been talking about as like a as like a critical race analysis right so like in a lot of communities of color where they're experiencing disproportionately police violence and therefore would never want to call a police officer into their community if they can avoid it right where they created similar organizations like Insight and CARA are two that are coming to mind most immediately, although I'm sure there are many, many more now. And and a lot of their task was like coming up with ideas for what would this better world look like based on what we have now. So like, for example, Insight, a.k.a. Insight Women of Color Against Violence, came up with this community accountability working document already back in 2003, where it's just like this list, and I'll just read you a few of them. (laughs) Um, and, And I'll read you the little note at the top of the list that says, These ideas have been generated from various communities involved with Insight's activist institutes and workshops. Insight does not endorse particular strategies. We recognize that what works in one community may not work in another community and that some of these strategies may not work in any community. The purpose of this document is to provide ideas and to spark the development of additional strategies that may help promote community accountability on the issue of violence against women of color in particular. So like one, the very first one, On the list is notify employer of offenders, domestic or sexual violence, conviction or offense. So that would fall within the category of doxing, right? Which we're seeing now as a response that has been enormously successful in many regards, right? In the Me Too movement with taking down someone like Harvey Weinstein. Like when I was writing this work, that hadn't occurred yet. So there's also a very different idea of what accountability in the case of sexual assault in particular can look like.
1: There's smaller scale like things that are entering the culture now which is like the idea of like if you get sent in a non-consensual dick pic send it to his mom like if that didn't use right. that's new and becoming a much more prevalent response and uh, and and is kind of like a and kind of in a way kind of doxing as well like somewhat
0: right so, so there's a couple of different dynamics at play in this post Me Too movement era that were not at play at the time that I was writing this. So like, for example, doxing, that wasn't really a thing that existed yet in 2003, 4, 5, um, when I was thinking about this stuff initially, and that has been instrumentalized both by the far right and the far left to meet some of their goals at certain times. And like I, for example, just experienced doxing myself and it sucks ass, do not recommend. Mm -hmm. However, and yeah, so another dynamic that's coming to mind most immediately is, you know, call out versus call in culture. That wasn't really a dialogue yet at the time that I was writing this, like calling out was like a relatively new concept. I mean, I don't think it is culturally at all, really, but that language to describe that meaningfulness I think was... It was a relatively new terminology. And then the casualties of the Me Too movement, I think are something, so this call out versus being called in, I think that the restorative justice process is really calling people in as opposed to calling them out, right? It's like calling everybody into the community to try and create repair for each other in various ways, which have to do with that circle, maybe that initial circle of harm or whatever. And then there's also like all of the other aspects like having people in the community who can be listeners or who can give advice like a therapist might or uh, having a food bank or having like healthcare services. So like things that we were working in, on in Santa Fe, for example, before before my friends and I started facing these charges where we were working on like a what we were calling the mobile apothecary project. So like we noticed that particularly people in the pueblos and on the reservations are disproportionately being impacted by COVID. And they oftentimes are living in food deserts and they're living in places where there are no Indian health services or they're very scarce on like huge, vast swaths of land. Um, And therefore there's a need for good local food. There's a need for, yeah, a nutritional need, obviously. And then there's also a need for culturally relevant And sustaining medicines and like a different way of considering the body as a whole within, particularly when working with indigenous communities, right? A decolonial framework that's not Mm -hmm. um, continuing to point to an indigenous body or like, I mean, this, this would go also for, you know, a femme body or a trans body or, you know, any kind of a more marginal body and saying that that, that body is off you know, at its very base, at, at, at a starting point, like all of our research and data that we've ever done has been based on white men. And therefore, like you walking in, I don't even know how to deal with your body, right? Mm-hmm. You are not default. Exactly. Um, So it's, so the idea of this mobile apothecary project was to fill one of those support gaps, right, that can then hopefully prevent more harm in a community. In this case, we were looking at COVID because that's the biggest issue for everybody right now, right? In the whole world. But <laughs> um, but that can prevent violence and other challenges later down the line too, if people are supported. Just an example. Mm-hmm. So that's their very first point was noted, was the doxing. And then there's also You know, everything from conducting community meetings with batterers, accountability sessions, working with core groups and religious institutions to hold perpetrators accountable, passing flyers around the community, apropos violence and connecting people to each other and resources. And then they go into things like I mean, they're just like some of them seem almost like random ideas, like throw stones at an offender's house, clang pots all night at his place and other such activities to disrupt his or her life or their life. And then there's also things like violence prevention classes in school, self-defense classes, you know, distributing a list of known rapists. This is a tactic that was used before Me Too, that mm-hmm. that kind of got Me Too off the ground, right? It was like that initial list of producers to avoid or directors to avoid, people in the industry to avoid. Developing community watch groups that are willing to engage in direct action on issues of violence, confronting various issues and uh, that, that contribute to violence. Doing community needs assessments, uh, including participant action-oriented research with potluck sessions for stealth community building. Education with family members of survivors to enhance support for them. Identifying what communities both the survivor and the perpetrator belong to, like on a very basic level, to figure out where accountability strategies can even be applied. And then like at the very end of the list of 70 things is talk about the issue publicly amongst friends, family, and community members. So it's it's really a broad range. Um, well, here we are. And here we are. <laughs> so, I like that. <laughs> so yeah, so for me, that's what restorative justice is about, is it's both utilizing an abolitionist framework that seeks to create repair, restoration, transformation of harm in communities without... Uh, having to make use of, you know, the American judicial system. And in most cases, although, as I said before, it's now being utilized by the state as well as a punitive measure, (laughs) Um, which is kind of renders it somewhat absurd, right? And that is also able to envision, like sort of broadening the edges of our radical imaginations for what a more supportive world would look like like what what are the things that we can actually do in our daily lives that can prevent this kind of harm from happening
1: beautifully said thank you i love how some of that addressed things that like it it would never even have occurred to me to say like hey like i want this and and it applying to things that like all survivors kind of experience which is like wow I wish my my family or my friends like knew how to fucking interact with me like just (laughs) it's so beyond the system that we have or the culture that we have that like it would never occur to me like hey what if there were like a class or or like support available to them so that they could be more informed and understand how to be supportive. Like, holy shit, like what a radical fucking idea. Or maybe even more to the point,
0: I mean, in terms of actually addressing the root cause of the harm would be, Mm -hmm. there was a program I got really excited about a couple years ago, and I wanted to bring it actually to the high school that we went to. That was offered through the Media Education Foundation and it was like a mentoring program for young men so that Mm. in school you're learning how not to perpetuate rape culture. I think what is amazing about the potential of restorative justice processes is that like we can curb harm like we, we don't even need to be dealing with it after the fact that is a mistake that we're making. Culturally, it's like the way that we deal with medicine a lot of the time, too, right? Is we're just treating one symptom and not treating the whole with a quick fix, which in this case, oftentimes looks like prison. It's like, we'll just get rid of it. And we'll pretend it's not happening. (laughs) Versus like, uh, okay, so it seems like maybe you have a headache because you're dehydrated. So maybe instead of taking that aspirin, we could give you some water, we could make sure that you have access to clean water. Instead of having to come up with resources to pay for the aspirin, you know, <laughs> yeah. which I think brings me to point 66 on this list, which I think is worth saying, because it just ties in with what I was saying around what I was mentioning before around critical race analysis and how this ties in. So point 66 on this list that they compiled insight is develop a campaign around an issue that ties state violence to interpersonal violence. One such campaign is the American Indian Boarding School Healing Project, which calls for the U.S. to be accountable for boarding school abuses against Native children. It also frames the sexual violence currently in Native communities as a result of human rights violation caused by U.S. state policies, around boarding schools. This framework takes out the shame of talking about sexual violence and demonstrates the importance of addressing sexual and domestic violence in developing effective anti-racism and anti-colonial campaigns. So I think this is important for two reasons. One, because of like understanding this framework of violence reification as like something that is administered by the state upon all of our bodies all the time and particularly indigenous bodies or bodies of color trans, you know, various queer, queer and disabled bodies as well, but consistently in the history of the United States, it's always been, you know, Native Americans. And the basis for, you know, the eugenics that supported, you know, the scientific racism that supported uh, US racism for so many years is also, I was actually talking with a friend about this the other night is ableism, right? Because the, again, going back to the body that's expected to walk through the door, right. And how to treat it, that it is necessarily an abled, you know, mentally, like, even when I'm thinking about standardized testing, right. Cause I'm a teacher. I have to go back to that. Always. It's based in eugenics. It's all based in eugenics, <laughs> abledness, perceived abledness. So like that's mm-hmm. the underlying cause it seems of racism and sexism in our society too. So I think that's worth noting, but also, the other aspect that I think is worth noting about this particular point is ancestral trauma, which, mm. um, which I don't think can be dealt with at all through the prison industrial complex or, or punitive that. justice whatsoever. Yeah. I think that those are and, – and this really came into focus for me when I traveled to – I did a, to Galit, a birthright trip, and then I traveled to the West Bank afterwards, and it, it felt so clear to me being there that you know the basis of all of the issues there the underlying cause is unresolved ancestral and personal trauma so like until we actually deal with this shit it's not going to go away it's just going to get worse so if there's any like really compelling reason to entertain a restorative justice model i would say that that's it is because we're never actually going to be able to deal with our shit unless Um, Unless we really make a concerted effort, (laughs) you know, like we can think about it and talk about it. But like if we're not actually doing the work and that looks different, you know, a little bit different for everybody, then we're not going to be able to proceed in a good way. As a nation state, at least, you know, that's founded on colonialism and slavery. And
1: genocide. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Word. You know, being, being the main factor in all of that.
1: Yeah. We started with genocide and I mean, what a, what a way to start and how, how can you not touch any of that for, I mean, I mean, build on that in the worst way uh, for, for centuries and then, and then not touch any of it with a healing hands and then expect that that we're not going to have to, to dig deep and, and, Deal with it, like with with that that deeper healing, like to to address those wounds uh, and continue. There's no way we're gonna have a society (laughs) that's gonna function if we don't if we don't do that together. Right, and we
0: saw you know we saw the way that the opiate the quote unquote opiate crisis unfolded. Right, the way that white lawmakers started responding to drug issues with a much more humanitarian lens when. There were actually people that they knew who were affected for the first time until we uh, like have a restoration in our understanding of relationality and interconnectivity and the ways that we impact one another, as well as dealing with some of this ancestral or epigenetic trauma. Like, I don't, yeah, I just don't see how we can perceive meaningfully.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and, and ultimately, like tying this into Black Lives Matter, understanding As a culture, as a society, that one of the key problems is that we do place different values on different lives. Yes. And that that is a problem and that that needs to be seen and dealt with at its root. And that all these, all these, you know, just the myriad of injustices that take place, that it comes back to that root belief that some lives are more important than others. Yes.
0: Which is based on that um, eugenics idea. That is exactly. sort of the founding myth of our nation state that continues, yeah. you know, to harm <laughs> many, many people. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, I mean, we. I was talking a little bit about COVID and the way that it impacts indigenous community, but also, I mean, one must speak to missing and murdered indigenous women, especially after reading that last Point that came from insight that yeah these harms are these harms are not going away until we deal with them or even acknowledge them. So I think what what people are saying even more now is missing murdered and Indigenous women, girls, and two spirit or relatives. But I guess I'll I'll just read from their website a little bit. There is an organization that is specifically uh, the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Organization. But uh, what I was just looking at that I wanted to share comes from the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. And so I'll just read just a couple of statistics so that people are aware of what I'm talking about when I say that. Four out of five of our Native women are affected by violence today. The US Department of Justice found that American Indian women face murder rates that are more than 10 times the national average. Homicide is the third leading cause of death amongst 10 to 24 years of age women and the fifth leading cause of death for American Indian and Alaskan Native women between the ages of 25 and 34 years of age. That comes; Those statistics come from the CDC.
1: That's incredible.
0: So I think a, like an aspect, an economic aspect of this that probably a lot of people don't realize or care about is that there's something called man camps that have arisen in the Dakotas in this pipeline era. And in these man camps, there are men, ma- literally, it's it's camps of men, similar to what you were talking about, <laughs> almost for the, the camps of um, mm-hmm. sexual uh, assault perpetrators, right, or sex offenders. But these are camps of people who go to work specifically on, on building those pipelines or extracting oil and oil fields. And those camps, the... <laughs> I guess the impact of them is that many, 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 many more women go missing. They are mostly not populated by indigenous people. They're populated by white men and who don't seem to have very much regard for indigenous women's lives. And so every time that there's a pipeline, it's not only, you know, there's the environmental aspect of it and the spiritual aspect of it, which is what we heard a lot about with Standing Rock. But the social aspect of it that I think is the most key is this legacy of violence that is exacerbated exponentially by these man camps.
1: I had no idea. Thank you so much for talking about that. Yeah, but I'll just
0: read a little bit more from the website because I think it'll add a little bit more context. The legacy of violence against our Native women and children within New Mexico dates to the Spanish and Euro-American invasion of our Native lands and our sacred bodies. From the Navajo Long Walk to the slave trades in Albuquerque's Old Town to the current struggles of cases being lost within our judicial system, this is a legacy of violence. This incursion of violence onto our most sacred must be spoken about. And I guess another dimension that needs to be said here in the Pueblos, my understanding is that the social structure was matriarchal. And so when, mm-hmm. when they say sacred, they're also talking about the leaders of the community who are going missing, which I think adds another dimension of meaningfulness that is challenging for, you know, people who are settlers to understand because it's so different from how we've been brought up. Many times Native people are targeted in border towns for the person of a color, skin, anti-Indianism, and other influences of settler colonialism. New Mexico ranks third of being the the highest violent state in the United States of 6,561 violent crimes per 100,000. When we look at border town violence and police brutality against Native people, Native people are more likely to be killed by police officers than any other minority group in the nation we are number one in child poverty and we rank 49th in, in education over 40% of our native youth live in poverty here. So again, these are areas where it would be, if, if there were just like some more resources put in place, then people could probably deal with their own trauma, you know, even though it's many, many generations, but not having access to healthcare resources, not, you know, all of these basic needs not being met perpetuates this violence.
1: I'm gonna be blunt. It's always uh, really blunt. It's always seemed to me that the refusal to allocate those resources has honestly been a, a sort of passive continuation of the genocide, where it's just the the U.S. governments are, you know, the white settler mentality of "I wish they would just go away and die." Yes. And let us do what we want. Yes
0: that's how it's understood from from my understanding um on reservations for the most part yes and amongst quote unquote urban indians
1: and then you add the lack of clean water in in some of these reservations it it's just it's appalling a lot of people don't know that either there're people who have been living on native lands like uh and reservations that have been denied clean water clean drinking water yeah. for Generations.
0: Yeah, which is a whole other chronic issue that, I mean, there's lots to get into there. And we're seeing now for the first time, I mean, apropos clean drinking water, the Flint crisis Mm -hmm. was so well publicized and yet was not dealt with for many years. And it seems like some people might actually be facing some consequences for, you know, just not valuing the lives of poor people, mostly brown people, finally. Um, But that's a real turning of the tide. So. We'll see what actually comes out of that. I just want to shout out um, someone who's Dr. Christina Castro because she just worked on a report for the state of New Mexico raising awareness about missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives. Um, so I just want to shout, mm. shout her out because she's rad. And the Three Sisters Collective in general. Um, a couple of actions that I participated in. For, that were trying to bring attention to the missing, murdered, and indigenous women and relatives issue. I was given the task of painting some Native women's hands red to signify mm-hmm. that's the symbol for MMWIR. And I had three different women tell me that they had been trafficked and that everyone in their family had been trafficked. All of the women in their family had been trafficked. So I know, unfortunately, that it's a pretty serious reality here.
1: Yeah, I had heard that indigenous women are highly prized in human trafficking right. as a part of exoticism. Wow, people are yeah. terrible. I mean like levels of evil
0: I know that this is like a an experiential reality and, and not just an abstraction.
1: In your in your studies, especially with your interest in in backgrounds in anthropology, are there any cultures, tribes, points in history, countries that you felt got even like close to getting justice right? That you would point to and be like, "Hey, maybe more in this direction." Hmm.
0: I mean, I think the the peace circle, peacemaking circles, are based. You know they're an appropriation of a native form, so. But I don't know if there's a culture or society that has consistently gotten justice right, (laughs) or what that would even look like. I, I think that we have, I mean, such leaps and bounds to make intellectually and psychologically as a species before we really get there. Right? Like it it started out as just punitive. You know, you murdered somebody, so the state will murder you. Um, which we just saw, yeah. you know, like a horrible, horrible,
1: yeah,
0: horrible example of that in the Trump administration in the last days of their office, rather than pardoning people wildly, you know, and rampantly, like, like, a president is often want to do at the end of their days, instead, going on an execution spree. Um, so, yeah. I mean, Well, we pardon people too, but... <laughs> he
1: pardons Roger Stone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um but going a pardon administration and then I'm going to
0: kill brown people. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um and one mentally ill woman who I mean
1: Yes, she was a survivor, was a survivor uh, yeah. and
0: did a grisly crime and also
1: executing her wasn't the correct way to deal with it. Um well if if especially because she experienced psychosis if someone is mentally ill and experiencing psychosis that goes against everything yes um they're not competent like they they're not able to participate in reality in the same way and killing them is just fundamentally wrong and i like i'm not going to waste breath explaining it it's just it is fucking wrong (laughs) i don't
0: Yeah, personally, I feel like the death penalty is fundamentally wrong. Like,
1: yeah, I was, I was gonna say, like, I'm, I I am against the death penalty. But then there's, there's just like levels of it being not right. (laughs) It's just like, even if you are for the death penalty, killing mentally ill people, uh, or developmentally challenged people, or just, uh, just, there are certain things where it's like, we don't do this. But we do. Killing kids things like that and it's like and yet we do it yeah philadelphia is also
0: famous for having the most children on death row and the most children in prison for life oh my god but i don't know on the spectrum of you know just murdering people willy-nilly uh to deal with our problems to where we're at now i mean i would hope i don't know there's a novel that i read (laughs) many years ago actually it's kind of a science fiction novel called the kin of atta are waiting for you and they sort of experiment with like a combination i mean just in in the the author's thinking um she's sort of experimenting in her storytelling with ideas of restorative justice and also like that more traditional style of banishment and that was a pretty interesting take on the way that justice could be i mean i just think that we have a ways to go still in terms of expanding our personal resources to be able to engage in the kinds of works both where we're doing this radical imagining and also where we're able to implement that into you know practical reality I I don't know that I've seen I mean I think there are a lot of small-scale societies that don't do it too badly I don't have great faith for really large-scale societies like the one that we exist in now I don't think that it's very sustainable on really any level. I mean, for all of the reasons that we've been discussing, because Mm. I mean, just beyond the lack of resources and infrastructure for support, um, there's also just with a big government or with a big society, you know, that in which we're socially contracted or whatever, you know, there's going to be certain boundaries or rules that are, uh, that are part of that social contract that just don't apply to everybody or not appropriate for everybody. And therefore, I think it's really smaller scale communities that have the most success with actually implementing these kinds of uh, models, because Mm -hmm. they're actually similar to how I feel about healthcare, right? So like, my dad, as you know, is a naturopathic doctor, and he is way too thorough, he spends three and a half hours with people trying to understand, you know, what underlying causes are and approach them as a whole being spiritually, psychologically, physically, and emotionally, right? And oftentimes gets way too much information. But one of the things that he does find through this process is that there is no remedy that is appropriate for everyone, even if it appears as if they're experiencing the same set of symptoms, if they're presenting the same way symptomatically, right? That Mm -hmm. there's still going to be a different underlying cause that's going to have to do with probably their epigenetics. Right? Because we have alleles that will present in cer- certain circumstances. And even if they're present, they may not present in other circumstances, right? Even if they're present in the body and latent, they could be brought out based on our environment and other factors. So I, I think the same goes for justice and all aspects of our needs as beings because we're complex. I mean, there's like, there's some things that apply to all of us, right? Like we all probably need with the, with the exception of the rare aesthetic, you know, housing or some kind of shelter, all the, everything in the Maslowian hierarchy. But mm-hmm. then there's, which we're not dealing with as a society to be clear at all. First of all, <laughs> like, I mean, just the, the few times that we've mentioned homelessness, I feel like are sufficient to illustrate that point adequately, but, mm-hmm. um, And then there's also all of the things that are not necessarily common to each and every one of us that we have to address meaningfully and that cannot be addressed in the same ways every time. So that is why I tend to think that altogether we would do better on a smaller scale. Not, not that we should, you know, abolish the idea of globalism, not, not in the sense that Trump uses it right as like the Jewish conspiracy Mm. or whatever, but um, (laughs) globalism in the sense of like that, Genghis Khan was a harbinger of right of like connecting the world everybody in the world to one another I, I don't think that it has anything to do it's not like a one or the other thing it's like we can operate in a more functional and sustainable way in smaller groups in society and also have connections and see how other people are doing it elsewhere so that we can improve our best practices
1: that's an interesting thought because certainly something that i have noticed is that when we when we try to uh operate from this this place of uh of regimented sameness of like let's create a standard and then people need to conform to the standard you know that that as you were talking about people as unique individuals with unique needs you know and that the standard ignores that and then especially at a state level trying to Get a massive population to conform to a standard that doesn't take an individual into account.
0: And the standard, also as we or... named already, is white, and yeah. male, and able bodied, right?
1: <laughs> that is a form of violence. Yes. in and of itself. Yes. And that's boom, right? Right there. And and most of us have experienced that to some degree.
0: I think of you often when I when I think about this, <laughs> the, the experience of violence that you had being framed as a school shooter or a would-be school shooter in middle school because you didn't conform just on a basic aesthetic level with mm-hmm. the dominant culture in that sphere. That's also an example of how small-minded and grim these things can be in small communities. It goes both ways, I think.
1: Mm-hmm it It really does, like, and it comes down to human nature and you know like in microcosm reflecting macrocosm vice versa like and and essentially like it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the need to identify those deep wounds and actually do that work and I think uh, a small scale society will fail, and as will a large scale society will fail as long as those deep wounds go untreated or unrecognized. I mean,
0: and I guess I would say the one other thing is and and that the support is in place. So if the support is in place, I think that there's also the possibility if there's infrastructure already, right, in in the social contract of the small community or whatever we're talking about, that, you know, we're not going to allow racism or we're not going to allow sexism or transphobia or some other isms, you know, to Mm -hmm. get in the way of our decision making as a community. Like this is, this is a value system that this feels more important to uphold than anything else. Then I think that there's the possibility, even in a small and, you know, potentially closed minded community for there to be justice through these processes. But yeah, definitely goes both ways.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and, and on the creation level as well, like creating from the ground up saying what we create, what we put in place needs to serve all the people Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we're still overcoming a period of time where even that statement is met with immediate resistance and annoyance. It's incredible when it should just be met with like, well, of course, why wouldn't you do that? Right. And I think <laughs> and it's
0: all so bad about it. I was having a talk, I feel like with Elliot about this actually the other day. and I'm trying to remember she brought up a very good point, which was about, It was about fragility, but it was about like sort of the underlying sense that there's no place in the world for us that so many people experience, even if they are of, you know, of the body type that's considered acceptable, or the skin type that's or the gender that's considered acceptable, they still like, like in the case of, you know, white supremacists storming the Capitol, they still feel as if they aren't seen and accepted. And therefore, a statement like, Black lives matter is very threatening because they don't feel as if they're intrinsically included in all lives, mm-hmm. you know, that that's why they have to say all lives matter. Which is very basic and yeah. sim- simple, but um I think has a lot to do with what we see now.
1: Yeah, loneliness is a transcending human experience that is deeply wounding. Mm-hmm.
0: Um I want to talk just a little bit about likewise how these restorative justice processes are sometimes really shitty and just reinforcing the violence of the state. Cause I feel like that's worth mentioning.
1: Yo, go for it. Yeah. We're re-
0: in a really challenging moment and that we're trying to redefine our culture, right. As a culture that's hopefully not going to be steeped in violence of a colonial and racist and uh, sexist persuasion anymore. It seems like a lot of people are on the same page about that, at least realizing that that's, what's been going on forever. For the first time in some cases. And there are some cases where a call out is really clear and necessary. Like we mentioned Harvey Weinstein earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. This is somebody who um, is part of the elites, is wealthy, has been whitewashed, even though he's technically Jewish, and has been a serial predator who's taking advantage of a very clear power differential over and over again, right? That is somebody who fucking needed to get called out. And while I'm not a fan of the PIC, I nonetheless felt gratitude um, when that monster went to trial. And I also felt gratitude thinking about him in jail, which is fucked up. (laughs) Um, However, he is not... The case for most people, right? Like most people are not serial predators with like a with a vast power differential that's really measurable. Most people who, you know, are finding themselves in gray areas of consent are regular people in our lives. And some of those people do serially cause harm, but many of them don't. Many of them are, are just unclear, You know, either didn't get a good education growing up about what consent was, didn't receive good feedback or got very negative messaging that you know pushed them in a direction that suggested that the needs of the people that they were sleeping with didn't matter or whatever it may be. Anyways, I just want to point to, I, I have experienced in my own life with a few of my friends, situations wherein there was not a clear power differential. And in many cases, there was mutual abuse or there was one incident of abuse that was talked about without looking at the oeuvre of the relationship, right? And the fact that there were abusive patterns that were going on on both sides for a long time before the actual quote unquote incident.
1: There was a term in there that I didn't understand. Which one? Uh, it seemed like it could have been a Hebrew word.
0: Oh, ouvre. It's uh, French, The like sort of the whole picture.
1: Okay, it was French. Yeah. I just I wasn't sure. Uh, yeah, the
0: whole picture. Um, I'm, I'm sure oh, okay. I mispronounced that in, in, terribly. but um, Well, I don't speak
1: French, so I mean, I'll never know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, so people have been swept up as casualties. I guess I just wanted to name that because I have had friends who have been in dynamics where, you know, both people were of a marginal status in varying ways. Like I'll give one example. I had a friend who was trans, a trans woman who was severely mentally ill and very transparent and upfront about it, who was dating somebody who occupied a bunch of other marginal identities. And and they were kind of evenly matched in that regard, I would say, in many ways, although one person was bigger than the other. So there was the possibility of like, you know, a different level of physical violence coming from one person or the other that's one example that comes to mind, but, um, another is wherein again, there was like a person who was transitioning and there was another person who was identified as, as a femme and the femme felt very unsafe in her space. And the person who was transitioning kept pushing her and pushing her until she, uh, did something violent towards them. And then she was called a transphobe and like defamed. So I would say, and, and then I also have other people in my life who have been accused of sexual assault or some other form of violence, where like, there was like some shadiness of consent, or perhaps not great communication, but there wasn't actually like a violation that occurred, a physical violation. And things kind of got twisted, because people got caught up in the Me Too movement, I think, to some extent as well. So I just want to name that. Uh, I don't think that that's 90% of what's going on. I think at least 90% of what's going on is that we always fucking have to listen to women and that we always fucking have to listen to people who say that they've been hurt in general and and try and create repair. But I just feel like it's worth saying that sometimes people go through these processes and whether they are ill-conceived or implemented or just don't have like this critical analysis that extends to these other aspects of identity, different marginalities that we can occupy that it can be very problematic and and not cause more repair or restoration or healing or whatever. It's actually causing more harm.
1: Well named.
0: And I don't think that that's what's going on most of the time. And I still think that it's worth trying to be clear as well.
1: Yeah. It's, it's just, it adds like another level of like, Hey, this is complex and it will continue to be complex. But I think uh, restorative justice probably leaves more room for complexity than our current system does.
0: And I think also that in many cases, there wasn't a full restorative justice process that was explored in those instances. I think that there was a call out that occurred. And then there was talk of a process that didn't actually materialize. So these people were just left Mm -hmm. as casualties, which is then just perpetuating the same harm, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, I've seen some messy stuff as well. And it's, um, it's sad and it's upsetting because it it does just kind of seem like a a continuation of the violence. Mm -hmm.
0: And the call out is intended to bring about accountability. And if the call out doesn't bring about accountability of any sort, and it just is bringing about more suffering, then I don't know what the usefulness of it is. It's, it just becomes another mechanism of revenge.
1: Yeah it's uh, yeah it keeps coming back around to yeah this this idea of like finding those deeper wounds and then ultimately like i think like at the heart of this episode is that we as humans don't know what justice should look like we're starting to realize that we need to step away from violence and we have no idea what that looks like mm-hmm. and we don't know how to do it we don't know what any of these systems could or should look like that, you know. You t- you you said earlier, and I loved it. Radical imagining. That's what we're doing. We're trying to have ideas outside of the system that has been in place, and that is that is radical imagining. And it's it's a big step, and it's going to take a while, and it's a process, and it's it's hard too because whenever we propose something new. We we really love to to have that like, oh, will you want to put something else in place? Tell us exactly how it's going to work. And if I can find any holes in it, no, we'll
0: just keep working with the shitty thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. That's we we love doing that, you know, like so. So if you if you have like concerns that you need a solution and it's like, no, we don't have a solution. We need to figure it out, though, and we need to do it together. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just, it, it has to happen.
0: We all need to be invested. So, I think
1: that's, yeah. that's the
0: main thing until there's like, yeah, I don't, because we're just on such a big scale.
1: <laughs> there's so many people here, <laughs> It is, but, but I think like framing it the way that you have in terms of it's all a cycle of violence that we've been stuck in and that we haven't been able to think outside that system. And that that's the call to action is to try to think outside that system and ask different questions and seek that deeper wound and try to find ways that we could address the deeper issues that we have been ignoring, that maybe that's where we'll find a new definition of justice that might have a, a deeper resemblance to what we've always imagined it could be or wanted it to be. May it be so. Because we certainly idealize it and anthropomorphize it, and you know, we we're we're very romantic about justice, you know, and uh, and ultimately, what we have had as justice is not true justice. Ultimately, and when you talk to so many people, that's something that eventually, if you keep breaking it down, that most people will admit mm-hmm. um, is that it's problematic and that it's not true. Mm-hmm and uh, and finding what what is that true justice what can that what can that look like what can what can we create and how do we live with ourselves and each other word that
0: is at the core how do we live with our own maladjusted behavior <laughs> <laughs> and each other uh, yeah great question <laughs> or adaptive right mm. maladaptive i hope we find a way so, do I. I was feeling a lot of faith this summer? Actually, I was feeling really encouraged and hopeful for the first time in a really long time. That's been um, stepped on a bit <laughs> since then, but um, yeah, may it be so. I hope that we figure it out in our lifetime. It'd be cool if we figure it out in the next couple generations.
1: That would be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep watching Star Trek and keep trying. Yeah.
0: That. Star Trek, really. I mm-hmm. think science fiction, and Adrian Marie Brown actually is also an Octavia Butler scholar, and I think that science fiction is actually extremely instructive insofar as being able to mm-hmm. expand those bounds of our radical imagination. I mean, we see it also just in terms of technology, like things that were in Star Trek are now showing up on the market, inspiring inventors. Yeah. So. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I find myself yeah there. There are those moments in, in life where I find my, I I grew up with Star Trek. I watched the communicators, those, mm-hmm. you know, like those moments where you watch the flip communicator in the original series and all of a sudden you have a flip phone and, and all of a sudden you basically have a like almost like a tricorder type, like with a touch screen that's now reality and uh, like everything is possible in the palm of my hands. And you just kind of look up and you're like. So what about like, you know, the abolishing currency? Right. thing? Can we, like, what, what else is possible? Know,
0: just, Can we do that, that? that? Apropos, I just watched this morning an episode of Discovery. I think it's the last one or the second to last one. I don't want to give it away, but there was a very good line specifically about capitalism. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> Star Trek, mm-hmm. you're so on point all the time. All the time. (laughs) Yeah. Gene Roddenberry was certainly a visionary genius. These black women are too. These black and indigenous women and two spirits are fucking visionaries when it comes to what could another world look like. So I'm trying to pay attention
1: to them. Thank you for amplifying their voices.
0: Yeah, that's my hope always. Yeah, I I feel very privileged and and blessed to have been able to have encountered their words
1: and want to share there was a moment where I was just sitting here, I was just listening to you talk and I'm like, holy shit, I know like the most amazing people. And I felt just so lucky and so privileged to know you and to have you in my life. And you're just, you're amazing. And yeah, and thank you. Thank you so much for coming here and for sharing, not not just for being in my life, but for sharing having this conversation on this, on this platform and making it available. Yeah. Thank you for, for creating that opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out the episode notes for today's show, because they are a veritable treasure trove of citations, videos, and links. If we mentioned it today, it's probably there. Please visit the podcast website, www.fin.com d-i-n-g dash Let me know if you're interested in joining me on the show. I would love to have you. Here's the part where I usually talk about how you can support the show, but today I'm going to ask you to support Lily. She and a number of other folks, some of them indigenous people, are facing multiple felonies for allegedly participating in the removal of a racist monument. In the episode notes, you will find a crowdfunding campaign to help with their legal fees, as well as a clemency petition you can sign. Please share and donate if you can. Every little bit helps. Thank you. You can find me on Facebook, where I post relevant articles, art, memes, and resources daily. Feel free to friend me. Hecate F-O-K. H-E-C-A-T-E F dot O-K-A-Y. You can also find me on Instagram. I have created a private Finding OK Facebook group for survivors. You are welcome there, and I hope you'll join us. Please take a minute to rate and review the podcast to help me reach more listeners. Reviews are featured on the website, and you get a shout out on the next episode. If you can't afford to donate leaving a review and sharing online or through word of mouth is the best way you can help the podcast. Please share, subscribe, and donate if you can. Thank you again for listening. This has been Finding Okay. Black Lives Matter. Take care of yourself. Your heart is
0: a muscle the size of your fist. Keep on loving, keep on pointing, and hold on, and hold on. Hold on for your life. Heart is a muscle, size of your fist Keep on loving, keep on fighting